So hi everybody and welcome to our podcast, uh, Phil Myers podcast, I'm Paul Farron and I'm here with John Butler whose Papi Chulo is coming out this Friday, June 7th. John, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I loved Papi Chulo. Thank um, you. I'd like you to give the synopsis to our listeners. Yeah, sure. It's a comedy about loneliness, um, basically, and it's about a solitary and alienated weatherman in Los Angeles who's given gardening leave from work for a breakdown on air that happens at the very start of the film. And he decides to do some home repairs and hires a Latino migrant worker to help him paint his deck. And um, despite a language barrier and uh, clear kind of cultural differences, this white weatherman and this Latino migrant worker develop a kind of odd couple friendship that plays out over the streets of Los Angeles. So it's, uh, yeah, it's in a kind of tradition of odd couple buddy movies that I've seen and loved down the years. It's got maybe a hint of Lost in Translation about it, um, uh, maybe a little bit of Sideways as well. But it's just about kind of strangers connecting in a huge city um, and Los Angeles plays itself. Uh, you're very familiar with Los Angeles, am I right? Or California anyway, because yeah. you spent some time there. Tell me a little bit about uh, where the idea for the film came originally. Yeah, I've spent so much time there over the years. I lived in San Francisco for uh, a long time and lived in LA for a bit as well. And I love it over there. And uh, I'm always very defensive of LA when I come back uh, to these parts of the world because everybody's like, oh, don't you need a car to go everywhere? And I'm like, you drive to Spar to get your cigarettes. So, um, yeah, it is, of course, vast and there is a lot of cars and there is a lot of um, vapid celebrity and all that, but it's also incredibly beautiful and interesting and uh, and has lots of diversity and uh, great art and great culture. So, yeah, it's a city that I always thought was represented in a way that I didn't recognise so well on film and I really relished the idea of making uh, a film about LA as I saw it. Um, but I also loved the idea of a uh, lonely weatherman because I just, whenever I'm watching the weather forecast, I just think it's one of the most kind of existential jobs in the world, standing in front of a green screen and attempting to predict what's happening with our planet. <laughs> it did sound like a sexier job in LA than it might be in Dublin, though. <laughs> well, I, the one thing I will say is at least you got a bit of variety here. It's like, you know, today there's some fog, you know, whereas in LA it's it just like the, yeah. sun, 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 and then... Apocalyptic downpour and then sun, sun, sun. Yeah, it reminded me of the fast show joke, Scorchio. 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 <laughs> yeah, no, they don't have much to do over there, the weathermen, until something apocalyptic happens. Yeah. You, I have never been to LA, so I can't talk uh, other than saying it was a very unusual look at the the landscape. But it, the film for me was a wonderful two-hander. There are a lot of other characters in there mm. and there's a lot going on, but it essentially is a two-hander. Mm. And you use locations in a very tightly constructed way. Yeah. I mean, you avoided the Hollywood sign and you yeah. avoided a lot of so-called LA-isms, would yes. I be right? I think absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, LA is kind of um, divided by freeways and I didn't go really to the west of uh, the 405 or the 10, which is where the LA that you see more often is, is found, like the beach the boardwalk in Venice and Santa Monica and all that uh, side of it, which is perfectly nice and uh, and decent, I suppose. But the LA that I knew and that I always gravitated towards was to the east, uh, which was more culturally diverse and more queer and poorer 
and further up in the mountains and further away from the water, you know. And so for a, a story about kind of being uh, emotionally parched, it just felt like the right place to go. But also it was the LA, you know, Echo Park, Silver Lake, Atwater, Highland Park. All those less heralded neighbourhoods up in the hills were the ones that really interested me. You know, I, I would never gravitate towards Bel Air anyway because they'd have me shot. So <laughs> you go where you feel welcome. And that for me was always East LA. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, I love the views from the, the that hiking part of the world that I've heard so much about. Yeah, that's Runyon Canyon, or it's meant to be Runyon Canyon. It's actually Griffith Park, but uh, Runyon Canyon is where you see like uh, unbelievably manicured and uh, <clears throat> kind of w- well made up supermodels and Instagram influencers walking their tiny dogs, and the dogs are wearing sweaters, even though it's like four hundred degrees, and uh, they're kind of. Uh, there's some amazing overhearing that you can do on those hikes. Um, you frequently see famous people and uh, it's a real uh, kind of cultural institution in LA. It's like walking the, the seafront in Bray. <laughs> okay, that's perfectly brilliant. Explanation. I can, everyone will understand that. Yeah, it's a seafront in Bray, but it goes uphill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, what was interesting about it was it felt like there was the only bit of nature that knew, people knew to go to that were of a certain ilk within the LA class system. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, it, the, silver, the Silver Lake of Silver Lake is a reservoir and that tells you everything you need to know about LA. Yeah. You know, the beauty is very um, dry. like, uh, And that's why people... The property prices by the water, by the sea are so high. It's cooler over there, but it's also much more, um, it doesn't feel as intense because it's not, um, you know, you can look out and see blue. Whereas it can't be overstated how brown the hills get in LA when there hasn't been rain for a year. And it's, um, you know, it's uh, beautiful in a way that's totally alien to us uh, Europeans, you know, and and I find it fascinating. It's kind of woozy and narcotic in a way because... The heat has you slightly out of your mind and, you know, more often than not, I'm jet lagged when I'm there as well. <clears throat> and also the everybody's smoking um, legal marijuana. So everybody's a little bit high all the time. And then the music and the art that they favour over there is all like incredibly down tempo, mellow stuff. And so what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that culturally the mindset there is just attuned differently and it feels quite... Uh, foreign, literally, to uh, an Irishman over there. And I just wanted to try and capture a little bit of that atmospheric uh, wooziness on, on film. So it, it was always uh, your weatherman's story. Not, mm. And uh, our our Mexican friends from East LA, what part of LA would that be now? Well, from? Alejandro uh, Patino, the actor uh, who plays Ernesto and who's a, a terrific actor, he is born and bred in Compton. So he's from East LA himself. Mm-hmm. But the idea was that Ernesto, the character, is from Nayarit in, in Mexico, which is where Alejandro's father in real life is from. So he is an illegal immigrant? Yes. Okay, I, yeah. I gather that from, from, yeah. from uh, as I said, the way they, all the men lined up outside the hardware stores looking for that little bit of work. Yeah, it's like Cricklewood was. In, in the 70s and 60s in London you know okay. where it was like Irish navvies looking for a day's work and uh, I think now that's in uh, when you're in Kilburn and Cricklewood you see uh, Lithuanians and Polish guys doing the same in LA it is uh, universally 100% uh, Latino uh, migrant workers you never see uh, you never ever see anybody who isn't Latino outside, um, which uh, was an interesting thing to observe as a, uh, as a as a person visiting from overseas because you just kind of notice those things in a way that people who are native to there don't. You know, like if an American comes over here, they'll have lots of inter- interesting observations about our country. But it just always struck me as a very interesting um, and very clear dynamic that was at play, you know. And w- at what point did the idea actually emerge of this Totally diverse kind of characters meeting each other. Uh, 
I think it was just when I drove past Home Depot at a kind of low uh, point in my personal life years ago when I was living there and maybe just idly thought to myself, God, I wonder if one of those guys would be interested in just having a chat. Um, in an abstract way, I never really considered mm -hmm. it, but just, you know, and the transactional nature of the relationships between the white middle class and working class Latino community in West Hollywood is just fascinating to me. You know, you see nannies who who become so deeply embedded in the emotional life of the families they're taking care of, but yet they're undocumented and they don't have insurance and they don't have benefits, you know. So there's like a, a you know, there's a financial exchange going on, but there's also a really deep emotional exchange that isn't being acknowledged, you know. And also I remember walking past a garden of a apartment block in West Hollywood and seeing an elderly gay guy standing on the front stoop talking to his gardener while his gardener was working. And I went on and I went about my day and I came back two hours later and the guy was still talking to the gardener. And you could see that the gardener kind of just wanted to do his work and get home to his family. And that speaks to me about the... Um, the emotional exchange that is occurring beneath the surface of what seems like a transactional relationship, you know? And I think it's uh, unacknowledged in a way that I find fascinating. And so it was kind of, it sprang out of a couple of those uh, little observations. It's a huge thing in LA that the illegal, uh, so-called illegal immigrants, they exist, as you say, like people turn a blind eye to it all the time. They do. Um, they do because if they didn't, um, their economy would collapse. Um, nobody would pick their fruit, nobody would um, park their cars, nobody would serve them water in restaurants. And that's not to say that 100% of the Latino community that works there is working in the service industry or in agriculture, but it is a fact that those jobs are not being done by people who don't really belong um, to the Latino community. So I think it's very unfair and unacknowledged um, the debt that is being owed, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting time over there, you know, Um California is unbelievably bilingual down there, you know, and uh, so it's just, uh, I don't think a, a clear enough acknowledgement is being made of what has been given and taken in that relationship. As I said, the, the dysfunction, it seems to all lie with our main character, we're a weatherman, Sean, mm. and uh, the down, the, 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 the gravity and kind of the human kind of side is no with, with, with Ernesto. Mm. Um, uh, did you feel, do you feel that that's something that is, exists in a very solid way in LA? Which the, the, that kind of the, the the wealthier people, the ones with the bigger problems, emotional problems anyway, in terms of. I mean, very possibly. I mean, certainly in this instance, I think that's true. Um, but for me, it was just more interesting to to poke around with the idea of two marginalized communities um, relating to each other. So you have a single gay man who's working in TV and living in LA and is completely isolated from his community for various reasons. I mean there's a, an argument to be made that the kind of development of the apps and grinder and all that have, has kind of succeeded in decimating the sense of community that gay people had around their shared spaces. So he's perhaps a victim of that as well as uh, circumstances in his personal life. And that's a big part of what's going on with him. But I think I loved the idea of two people connecting, you know, out of the blue in a way that maybe was of mutual benefit, you know, um, and the idea that maybe, uh, you know, it sounds kind of trite, but like the ways in which we're really not that different to each other are just so interesting to me, you know. Yeah, you see, it's a very delicate piece and it is very hard for, I, I, we can't talk too much about it. People go and see it, enjoy it for how it, it just, as I said, it's um, it's a plot, but it's not a plot film. It's, it's a, there's a mood to it, there's a sense of characters to it, doing things mm. that, brings along and does not try and kind of uh, drown you with an opinion. 
Yeah. Well, this is the first, it's an interesting, uh, interesting to hear you put it like that, but it's the first film I've made that kind of demanded from the very outset to unfold at its own pace and for there to be very little intrusion by me or by the writer's hand narratively. And then in terms of how it's executed visually, it, it just, it seemed to come with its own set of rules. Like it was a very incredibly stubborn little piece of work. And I like that because it kind of, um, you know what you're doing because you're being told it by the material itself. You, yeah, you know? you're, you're being drawn along by what you're writing. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, you're trying maybe other things that maybe break the form and they're being spat back at mm. you, you know. Like, the, you know, there's no music in the film until Ernesto shows up. And that, in retrospect, when I say it like that, it sounds like a, a great piece of character-based rationalization. But it's literally the fact that I, I tried pieces of music in the film before and then they just spat back out at me, you know. And I think that's a great... Uh, privilege to get to as a filmmaker where you have a piece of work that is its own stubborn little thing and and you just have to listen to it and at what point uh, obviously you, you wrote the script you got treasure and robert and uh, mm. rebecca involved mm. it must have been a hard sell it's quite an unusual left yeah. field movie so yeah i, I mean i wrote it uh, i went for a hike with my mate stephen beresford who's another writer and all we do when we go hiking is talk about story and i told him some story from my personal life that has a very faint relation to this story and he was like you should write about that and I remember coming down off that hike and this is before maybe just after I shot Handsome Devil and getting the plane home from the LA that night and writing the outline for the whole film on the flight home and then writing writing the script in a few weeks after and giving it to Rob and Rebecca thinking there's no way that they will uh, agree to undertake the challenge of making an independent American film from Ireland set in LA like it's it's a crazy proposition and they immediately were like, yeah, we have to do this. And I love them for that because oh, they've got a great yeah. bit of, um, great bit of gumption and equally Screen Ireland, uh, you know, supported it and other financiers from this part of the world. And that's great because you're kind of sneaking under the wire. You're going into LA and making a movie about LA from a purely European perspective. And it has the, optically, it's an American indie, but it's an Irish film. And I love that. Yeah. The, the, you know, it just feels slightly... Um, transgressive of us to do that um, well, it nice. reminded me very superficially of one of another great uh, American film made by John Schlesinger called uh, Midnight Cowboy yeah and again that so I remember someone saying I don't know who it was I read it somewhere long ago that that outsider view of uh, yeah. of a country is always the most interesting one yeah and another gay we, filmmaker as well John yeah. Schlesinger yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah no that physical disparity between those two characters of Rats and, and the Cowboy were um were mentioned in casting our film as well. There's a there's a great history of those odd couples in American cinema. Scarecrow was another one. That's a brilliant um, film. Uh, God, yeah. I haven't seen that a long time. They're always like big guy, little guy, yeah. you know, brown guy, white well, guy. Well, goes back to Lauren Hardy. <laughs> yeah, it does actually. It does. And um, it's funny, I did, uh, Alejandro was the first tape I saw and uh, he hadn't finished doing his name ident and I was like, that is the guy just because of his eyes. But um, we then read him and a few other people against Matt and, uh, Matt, who's just the perfect gentleman and understands. Was it. Matt there from the very beginning? Yeah, he was, but he was reading against these people in the room and he said nothing about anybody. But when Alejandro did his thing with Matt and then left the room, Matt just turned to us and went, he's quite like Buster Keaton. And it was the only comment he made about any of the actors. And I already knew I wanted to use Alejandro, but in that moment I was like... Three years, because yeah. that was one of the things I just, I loved what he did with his eyes. But it's something I noticed, and again, I said, I said to you earlier, I watched A Handsome Devil today. I don't know what, again, I've obviously you don't manipulate and say, I want you to do this with your face, but you're very good at getting 
those gestures that speak better than a line of dialogue yeah. can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a beautiful moment at the end of Handsome Devil where where uh, Andrew Scott introduced his boyfriend to Michael Michael yeah. and it made me laugh it made me smile it was a really gleeful little moment yeah. and <laughs> I don't know how you got it out of them but again go see the film and you'll know what I'm talking well, about well we rehearsed that under the stands yeah. uh, about was... an hour before we shot it yeah. oh really so, yeah the three of them were just so it. much going on in, in that and again yeah. all those moments with, with uh, Matt and those ultimately nearly cringing moments between him yeah. and Ernest are just beautiful yeah, no, it's and so much credit goes to the actors in both of those cases. Michael McElhatton was, and Andrew, obviously, um, we were just, you know, I remember rehearsing that scene, we were just standing up and trying to get it right, and there was a rhythm to the way the looks unfolded, and once we got it, it was like, yeah, that's that's going to work. And it means when you do it like that, you don't need too much coverage, yeah. which is the key for independent films. Like, if you can answer those questions before you get on the set, then you're saving yourself some time. But, uh, but essentially, you've got, those, you've got three phases going on, you want to be able to read all of them at the same time. Yeah, and they're all doing different things yeah. that tell the same yeah. story. But Alejandro's whole thing, when you meet him, is he's got this million watt smile like he's such a happy lovely dude and when I met him I was like you're going to have to put that away for starters <laughs> you, we will be seeing that at two points in the film but what the, the genius of him is that he's a comic actor who knows that when you're playing seriously it doesn't mean that you turn it off it just means you hide it so there's little you can see that he is alive you know and that's what's how do you direct that? You can't. Like, but the idea is there is something in this character that is alive. He may not fully understand what's going on. He may not judge it. He may not hear it all. But he's alive and he's present. And that's all yeah, about yeah, listening, the, you know? The character's not... Uh, he, he's, he's not stupid. He's a highly intelligent man yeah. in, in, in a certain circumstance. Without giving it in a way, there's a lovely moment with him and his wife. Yeah. I think says... Yeah, volumes about him. Yeah, absolutely. And that that was really nice and very needed, and it was it was a great later moment. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean he's just uh, he's phenomenal. You know, he he's been acting for thirty five years, and he's uh, you know if you ask him wh what he's done, he he says oh, yeah I usually play the Mexican, um, <laughs> and that's LA for you. You know nobody's writing um, parts for these guys that aren't drug dealers or you know whatever, guys with leaf flowers yeah, in their hands. And, and, so. and the really tough ones, Robert Rodriguez, his cousin has them all. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah, yeah. So Alejandro's done wonderful work down the years in, in small parts and, you know, um, and there's a lot of terrific Latino actors in that city who are working all the time, but just uh, it was nice to be able to get them into this one. The rehearsal process, did you have one? Mm. And again, it, there was probably, as I said, it's such a kind of a chamber piece mm. that, T tell me more about that. We did about three days, I think. Um, we rented this big house in Silver Lake um, that had our production offices and housed our crew. And then we had a little place downstairs and Matt and Alejandro and I did some rehearsals. And to me, that's you don't want to uh, exhaust it or be too prescriptive about what needs to happen. It's more just a question of running through scenes and, and answering a couple of questions as they pop up and then leaving it slightly undercooked and letting it happen on the day. So we did some stuff like we did the song, we did Borderline um, over and over again and just to see how it was, you know, there's the practicalities of how much of the song you're going to use and all that stuff. So we did those scenes and um, it was very helpful just to dial in uh, uh, Alejandro's, the extent to which he would just listen and how he how that listening would manifest and how it would look. Um, and then all the character stuff that Matt had to do was about Sean's physicality. Um, there's a certain amount of kind of, uh, campness that's performative and then there's a kind of slightly different Sean yeah. that's 
private and you know the and it changes when he talks to different people as well yeah yeah and that's just <clears throat> that's that's the lived experience of every gay person you know they're hyper aware uh, out of necessity of where they are and um, I'm not saying they always um, or that it's right to but uh, it is I think very often a fact that their behaviour is it, it, you know has to um, <clears throat> they have to have it on a on a dial because uh, it's a matter of self-protection you know it was kind of like the two characters who were a sort of a foil for him within the the offices of uh, the production company are, are mm. both women. Yes, and and again he talks to them very differently. Yeah, he does. That's Darcy Carden, who's uh, doing great work in the Good Place at the moment. But uh, and Wendy McLennan Covey, who people know from the Goldbergs and also Bridesmaids. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he talks to them very differently. And the 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 Sean that reads the weather is a different person and the Sean that's alone in his house is a different person to the guy who then goes down to the hardware store where he is supposed to look like he's on enemy <laughs> territory and that's all based on me I'm afraid uh, well he, he's wonderful at taking chances as a character for all the isolation he's still he's still yeah, goes there he's a relentless optimist you know and I just I always think that's the most tragic thing is to have yeah, hope you know yeah. and that's Sean to a T God bless him like the idea that he gets up and he meets the world every day even though he is dying inside, you know. Uh, uh, two other of your uh, your allies in, in your filmmaking, I'd like to mention, are John mm. McPhillips and Carl Water. Yeah, Carl they Waters, both, yeah. And I, I really love McPhillips' um, score. Oh, it's amazing. Re- it, I, just, I haven't had a score stand there for me in a, an Irish film in a long time. Yeah. And it really jumped out at me. Yeah. As well as the cinematography, by the way. But let's do one at a time. Do you always go? Yeah. I think these are two films you've made with the guys or more. Yeah. No, two. Um, and they do the same thing in a way, which, uh, you know, I know sounds uh, weird, but I, I mentioned Brief Encounter to them in terms of the likely parod- parodying the uh, romantic mm-hmm. uh, plot of that. And, you know, to Cahill, my suggestion was that the gaze of the camera is explicitly queer in this film. And as such, the more lingering subjective uh, point of view is on Ernesto which is it runs completely counter to whoever Matt Bomer has ever filmed mm-hmm. because he's uh, obviously the kind of matinee idol and I think Carl took that and just ran with it and really understood like there's a hundred uh, other examples but Carl's so intuitive about um, stuff and we talked about a palette and we talked about loneliness and how, um, how that is framed and uh, you know we also spoke about how much of the film would take place in a car and the challenges that presented but his job that he's so good at is unifying all those different ideas into one manifestation of of what this story is and and then all those things applied to John as well he understood so well that the score was meant to kind of toe the line of a romantic Hollywood film and then for the for the sense of it to become slightly warped and he just I think, <clears throat> executed that so well like those things you know I would write a long brief for the composer and um, and and then sometimes you have to go back and forth and argue the toss but John is a kind of, the kind of guy who is as good at reading an email as he is at comp- composing music you know so yeah I love those two guys I think they're uh they seem to get what it is I'm trying well, to do. Well, well, I mean, the requirement from both, from everybody really, is, is understanding, or not understanding, but having a sense of the story that's coming from your information and what you hope to achieve at the end of the day. Yeah, but you'd be amazed how infrequently that is the objective of heads of department in filmmaking. Exactly. Like very yeah, often they, ha- they have their eye on their showreel or they have their eye on, 
individual moments. And that goes for actors as well. You know, uh, very often actors are looking out for moments um, and very often cinematographers are looking out for moments and are looking forward to particular scenes that are days yeah. away. And that's not storytelling. I, I, think, I think a real cinematographer understands that the entire film's a moment. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what came across. It The, the story was being told, but everyone would seem so evenly... Oh, yeah, I'm saying this very badly, but very paced. Yeah. I mean, even the way that the house was shot. Yeah. It is a certain form and composition that really added yeah. to the loneliness. And yeah. uh, by the way, you're very playful with symbolism. I just love some of your little <laughs> symbolism because it was quite nice because you were going, okay, this is symbolism. <laughs> yeah. But you, you would give that little nod without yeah. saying too much about it to everybody out there. I really like that. Yeah, no, thank you very much. That's really nice to hear. Um, but I am, I am very interested in... Um, you know, interviewing all the heads of department that we hired, who a lot of whom were Angelino. We brought our camera department and first AD and sound mm-hmm. over, and then blended them with um, American crew. And and foremost in uh, my mind always, and the mind of Rob and Rebecca, was that we need to hire storytellers. So our uh, production designer, it, it was terrific, and and completely understood the idea of the deck as a manifestation mm. of this guy's emotional state, and 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 told the story of the film that way, and. Same with wardrobe and and I love people who are interested in stories, you know, um, and who acknowledge that, you know, if you're buying the props for a film, you're you're telling the story, yeah. you know, as much as the music is or, of or course, the script, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you know, I think that's the best thing about actors as well that they're not just kind of going. So my fight scene is four days away, you know, guys, I got a hand or like, okay, well, I'm walking in here now with this bag. But wouldn't I see the view first? You know, like, and that's, I just, that's catnip to me. I will just talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah, that all yeah, day. Because yeah, yeah. it's just, it's purely, it's like inside out acting, you know. So it was an actual house you found. I think you didn't build a house. You yeah. didn't have that kind of budget. No, we did not. No. Um, uh, and it's a beautiful location. Yeah. Uh, but yet, as you say, it's like a lonely, eerie, despite the view yeah it's funny like that's a not a very expensive house um but because there's so much property in mm-hmm. la but it's i mean it's a beautiful house i'd live there but yeah. uh yeah we wanted to find a big glass box that yeah. was the idea something that's yeah. cantilevered that um suggests isolation and um something high up for sure but i mean i i because of my knowledge of la i had the neighborhoods that i thought sean's house was in which is like glassell park or highland park or eagle rock and i was adamant that that's where the house was going to be and uh rob uh who's so patient um gave me the list of locations that we were wrecking and the first one was on mulholland drive which is in hollywood and i was like oh for fuck's sake is nobody going to listen to me (laughs) and of course we drove up there and this was the house we saw and it was like well okay maybe i was wrong that's nice Um, (laughs) exactly yeah um but it's interesting it must be the first uh film in the history of filmmaking to paint out the hollywood sign because it's right across the valley I think it's a bit of time someone yeah. did it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But to me, that just suggested kind of alienating privilege. If a guy wakes, wakes up with that view of the Hollywood sign, then you're slightly thrown out of his story. And yeah. it's not a movie town in this film. It's just a big it, avo- it avoids anything to do with that, really. I mean... Yeah, it's for the same reason we don't have like Pink's Hot Dog or, you know, Hollywood Boulevard or The Sea or any of that other stuff, you know. I mean, even when you went into the world of television, you really just kept it isolated to the weather. Yeah, there was no discussion of where, where news was really coming. Thank God. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of improv in there that I was on Google for. I was like, "What happens? Like, okay, maybe an avocado truck overturned." <laughs> like, I don't know what goes on in news uh, stations. So yeah, it's just as well it was only the weather. Um, yeah. So, uh, what, uh, how much Irish crew did you bring over, by the way? We brought cam- the camera department, uh, 
and uh, our first AD, uh, Ben, and uh, Hugh Fox, uh, sound guy. And was it a big... And, oh, sorry, I should say all the backroom staff, well, like okay. all the treasure yeah. people. So. And what was it like working LA style compared to... It was great. They Everybody lived in that house. Um, we okay. rented it's like a big five story so house huge. in Silver Lake okay. so they all lived there I cleared off for the shoot just because I uh, go mental when I make films so uh, <laughs> it was for their sake as much as mine and also you don't want the boss quote unquote to be living there well, you know yeah. you're entitled when you go home after a hard day's work not to have to be looking at the fucking director well you kind of need to get away from where it was, the story was to have a rest from the story as well that's true yeah and and uh, the, the you know there's a couple of takeouts from the whole experience and that is that Irish crews are amazing that they worked our arse off and they're really smart, you yeah. know. And Matt, I think, if he was sitting here beside me, he'd be saying, like, Matt loved Cahill and Graham Scully and Hugh Fox and all those guys. He just thought they were incredible. Uh, and that fills your heart because um, it is an Irish film and the definition of an Irish film is Irish creative talent, you know. And so it really felt like we were doing the right thing when we brought those people over. Um, and it was just you know it's actually very moving to, to get to experience that, that with people that you've also made films in the pissing rain in Dublin with you know so it was great and uh, the whole so, experience so the was... weather wasn't a distraction for them <laughs> no I mean we de we definitely all got very badly sunburned uh, yeah, uh, the, the poor makeup department were running around with tubes of factor 50 <laughs> squirting them at our necks but uh, yeah you know, we learned fast in that regard yeah. um, and the local LA crew we got um, blended with us uh, very well so the whole thing was really joyful but I have to say you know this is a film that's kind of born of you know a semi-autobiographical experience of my time over there so the greatest thrill for me was being on these streets like say on a low loader of shooting a scene with two actors singing a song in a car and and looking up you know and being surrounded by my by my filmmaking friends by Carl and Graham and Rob and Rebecca and Sarah Gunn and everyone else and looking up from the monitor and it's magic hour in LA and you're looking up and you're actually driving down the street that you were living on when you were miserable 10 years ago that's just uh, it's a turnaround <laughs> it's just wonderful yeah it was a very uh, very emotional uh, experience and I loved it so you've had a great response you've um, won in Newport am I right yeah, yeah, won, and, yeah that's uh, right has it been has it had a release in America yet it's opening on Friday oh fantastic yeah so Matt is doing Stephen Colbert show tomorrow and he did Alan and he's did the Today Show as well so he's doing all the American press Alejandro's been doing a lot of the Latino press so it opens in New York and LA and then we'll hopefully expand uh, after next week if it does well so um, yeah it's a uh, it's had a great uh, response on the festival circuit but you know the big test for me is if it connects with an American audience and uh, I really hope it does um, because I think it has uh, something to say Anyway. Yeah, and it's because uh, it, it avoids niche and it's in danger of being people understanding it that way. It's not a niche film at all. It's a film about human beings getting on their lives. Yeah. Uh, Although it's funny, you know, if you try to sell a script like this, you know, they're like, yeah, it's 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 got a, a gay character, but it's not about the fact that he's gay. And then it's got a brown person, but it's not about the misery of the immigrant experience. Well, we can't really sell it. Heads. Yeah. You are, but you, then you say to them, well, maybe it's just a buddy movie. And they're like, yeah, but it can't be a buddy movie because one of them's gay and the other one's brown. <laughs> and you're like, right. So those are the challenges you face in a conservative business. And I Do understand. Do you remember a buddy movie from a million years ago, not very successful, with John Hurt and Ryan O'Neill as two cops and one was gay? No, what was Take it called? A, I can't remember. I think it was actually called something like Buddy, but I'm not sure. Was Ryan O'Neill the gay character? Ryan, no, it was John Hurt was the gay character. That's a miss. 
I, I I don't know. It just jumped back in my head there. I, was, I think it was a picture of John Hurt on the wall. I said, "Really? I one see of those that. great actors. Yeah, it was one of those weird ones that ends up on a double bill back in the day. That's how old it is. Probably seventy nine. I'd love to see it. Yeah, I would too. Actually, no, yeah, it. it's been a million years. No, I'd love to do a buddy movie. I'd love to program a buddy movie season because I think there it's a really I, interesting genre. Yes, it's it's one of my favorites actually. Yeah, um, I, I loved Booksmart. Um, that was I haven't seen that yet. Is incredible. It, yeah, incredible. But uh, no, but you mentioned Sideways <clears throat> earlier, and I think. Definitely, it falls in a place close to that. Mm. Again, they're two very different films in the end, but, yeah. but that kind of hanging out with people. There's not enough films where you get to hang out with people. Yeah. And you, you, people are just waiting, okay, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Mm. This one doesn't work that way. And it's very, very hard to do that kind of low-key storytelling. Yeah, well, I think, the, I think the only way it works is if you engage uh, people's preconceptions. You know, that's what gets them leaning in. And Alexander Payne is a kind of a master at that. He knows what you think about characters at certain points and then he subverts that or advances that. And that's what causes you to lean in like election and sideways in films like that. You can tell that he knows what you think and he's one little step ahead of you in terms of that. And I think that's how body movies work. You have to have a set of assumptions established and then have them pulled away. As the thing goes on, like that's what gives it its... It's emotion, you know. That's why Scarecrow is so good because you 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 think you know everything about these guys, and then the rug is pulled from under you as you go along, and, and that's what gives it its engine. Or like famously, obviously, Midnight Run, you know, yeah, where you think you know it all. It's a beautiful, yeah. And I love those films because they just on the surface they're so simple. Yeah, you know, it's two guys. It's funny, in a row you, I, and like I suppose one of the great ones is The Odd <clears throat> Couple. Um, yeah. But I just watched recently one of my it's my film I have to watch at least every Tuesday, and it's an odd buddy movie because it's not really a buddy movie. No, it's no, but the the Sunshine Boys. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's that's yeah. A, that's a really the oddest buddy movie in the world because they ain't buddies. <laughs> no, they're not buddies. No, also with Nell and I is a good one. That's a great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do love them, uh, and I think I love them because. Friendship is very important to me. Did you get the marketing people then to decide, okay, look, we'll try the buddy approach or are they, what's the marketing? No, I think, and I understand it. Listen, I was being kind of facetious with that, but I think um, it's being marketed as a film that will appeal to an LGBT audience, which I hope is Mm -hmm. the case. And also it's been marketed to Latinos, uh, to a Latino audience. And I think it'll appeal to them too. So who knows how it goes. And over here, what do you think? Over here, it's being marketed to 100% of all human beings. Yeah, human, um, human beings. There's a great marketing niche. <laughs> yeah. So not everybody. <laughs> and on that note, John, I think yeah. it's, thank you so much for coming in. More pleasure talking about it. Yeah. And, and good luck with the next project. I hope it goes thank great. You. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks very much.